Our scripture lesson this evening as we come to the conclusion of our brief study of Ephesians is the final verses of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. So I read to you now God's holy word as he inspired Paul to write to the church at Ephesus. Again, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. Let us attend with reverence to the reading of God's infallible, inerrant, and holy word. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Let's end the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading, its proclamation, and its hearing. Well, as we come to the end here of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's good to reflect on what the Apostle has been saying to us and to the Ephesian Christians to whom he wrote in this epistle. Uh, Paul has concentrated especially on the doctrine of the church. If you want the, the technical term for that, that's ecclesiology. If you look in a theology book and you see that word, uh, that's referring to the doctrine of the church. He has emphasized in this letter what we might summarize as the church's true, or we should rather say the true church's, peace and unity and purity. Uh, These ideas are interwoven throughout the letter, but we see each emphasized somewhat in different sections. In Paul's greeting at the beginning of the letter, he speaks of God's peace that comes with his grace. And that's often... Uh, The way that he greets, his usual greeting, is in grace and peace. And then uh, he launches into a description of the eternal decrees of God pertaining to the church and how the Lord works them out in his plans. Uh, This is something that those of you who are in Sabbath school this morning in the adult class, we talked about this kind of thing, uh, the uh, eternal decrees of God in relation to how then they are worked out. We we concentrated on the eternal decrees this morning, and in the future we'll see more of how uh, that plan works out in history. So outside of time, before time, if you will, even though that's kind of a nonsensical term to say before time, because before is a a time reference, but... uh, But outside of time, in eternity, God declared certain things. He decreed certain things. And then he works those things out in time, in history. So he declared a covenant between the Father and the Son, uh, that the Son would come and pay the penalty for his people's sins. He's the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And then he actually comes in history at a particular point and does that dies for the sins of his people. And so here Paul talks in chapter 1 about those eternal decrees of God pertaining to the church and how the Lord works them out in history through his plans. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, he says, because we were predestined for salvation in Christ. 
Christ purchased our redemption with his blood. Uh, The Holy Spirit has come as the guarantee of our inheritance in the kingdom. Our union with Christ who has made uh, peace between God and uh, redeemed sinners also then makes peace between the redeemed and the redeemed. And that brings us then to the doctrine of the unity of the church. The church has unity because, and we see this more in the second chapter, uh, we are united to Christ in his heavenly seating. We actually saw that in the first chapter. Uh, we're united to Christ in his reign. We're united to Christ in his resurrection. We're united to each other because in Christ, and this is more uh, the second chapter, the barriers between us, cultural, covenantal, national barriers, are broken down. And he gave us that image of the barrier that existed in the first century temple between the court of the Gentiles and beyond which the Gentiles could not go and the other courts of the temple. And it was uh, the death penalty for any Gentile to go beyond a certain point. And Paul says that middle wall of partition God has broken down. So now uh, Gentiles in Christ are Israelites. Christ gives gifts to each of us, showing that we are one people belonging to him. Christians are called to live out and exemplify that peace and unity in the purity of their doctrine and conduct. John Calvin wrote, It is indeed impious and sacrilegious to attempt to divide those who agree in the truth of Christ, but yet it is shameful sophistry to defend under pretext of peace and unity a union in lies and impious doctrines. So uh, Paul lays out God's principles by which we are to live with one another and defend the truth. So it has to be the truth that we are united on. So uh, Calvin was pointing out there that the Unity of the church has to be founded on a purity of doctrine. So he lays out, Paul lays out God's principles by which we are to live with one another and defend that truth. Christians are to forsake sin and anything that reflects poorly on Christ and his church, whether immoral conduct, whether foul language, whether destructive speech, whether theft or dishonesty, all sorts of things that Paul talked about in the second half of the letter about our behavior. We are to walk in love, imitating Christ's self-sacrificing love for us. Live in light, embracing what is good, right, and true. We're to give ourselves up for each other, modeling that especially in marriage, family life, and work life. And we're ready. We're to be ready to defend the gospel through the spiritual preparation of putting on the whole armor of God and employing it with fervent prayer. So Paul then comes to this final greeting and benediction. Paul has apparently sent this letter by the hand of Tychicus, one of his companions. Uh, At the very least, we know Tychicus has traveled to Ephesus around the same time the letter Uh, was to arrive, but it's pretty typical for him to name the person who's carrying the letter and say that he's to be greeted and accepted, and so that's pretty much, uh, that's a pretty good clue anyway here that Tychicus is the one who carried this letter. This makes sense that Paul would send the letter by means of this particular man. Uh, Tychicus 
appears in Acts chapter 20 as a companion of Paul who came from Asia. And now, remember, when you read Asia in the New Testament, uh, we're not talking about the whole continent that you would look on a modern map or globe and see Asia, and it's the largest continent, right? Uh, We wouldn't uh, think that or ought not to think that when we read in the New Testament about Asia. At most, it would mean Asia Minor, the the peninsula on which uh, most of the nation of Turkey today sits. But Asia in Paul's day referred to even less than that, really just the west coast or a portion of the west coast or the western portion of uh, the peninsula on which Turkey sits the Roman province of Asia, of which Ephesus was the capital. So it makes sense if Ephesus is the capital of Asia, and here a man from that same province, probably from Ephesus itself, very likely, would bring this letter to these churches in that vicinity. He carried the letter uh, to Ephesus, he carried the letter to the Colossians as well, which was written around the same time. And since Onesimus traveled with Tychicus to Colossae, where Philemon was, Tychicus probably also carried the letter to Philemon, if Onesimus didn't carry it. As he escorted Onesimus, Philemon's runaway slave, back to his master, with Paul's exhortation that the two be reconciled. Paul sent Tychicus, he says that, you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Paul wants his affairs, he says my affairs in verse 21 and then verse 22, uh, our affairs, so him and his companions. He wants the, the Ephesian Christians to know, to hear a first-hand account of how things are going for Paul as he is in his imprisonment in Rome. This would have been the imprisonment with which the book of Acts ends, as he is uh, there in the city of Rome, chained to a, a Roman soldier under house arrest, waiting for his trial before Caesar, because he had appealed his case to Caesar. Christ sends faithful ministers in the Lord to inform the church and encourage Christian hearts, and that's what uh, Paul calls Tychicus here. He's a minister. He's a faithful minister. Well, next Paul declares, in verses 23 and 24, peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus in sincerity. Just as he begins the letter by declaring grace and peace, he now ends it by declaring peace and grace. Just kind of flips it around. And that benediction there in those last two verses really sums up the themes of peace and unity and purity that we find throughout this letter. Peace is to come by God's sovereign grace with love and faith. And as we put love and faith into practice with one another, that results, of course, in unity and purity. Unity in love, purity in faith. We have this peace 
by the sovereign choice of God. Notice it comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not a peace that we thought up ourselves. It's not a peace that we negotiated uh, through some kind of a human, merely human mediator, nor by ourselves. It is a peace that we have with God and with one another by Christ Jesus that is a gift from God himself. We who are in enmity with God in our natural state have been given peace with God by his intercession. We who came from various backgrounds and would not have been one people are now one people. We have peace, and of course that will bring us to unity here in a bit. He prays for unity in love. And it's love with faith. That is, it isn't just a unity of church government. That's a surface unity. We all belong to the same organization, so we have that kind of unity. Though that may be an expression, an outward expression of the right kind of unity, but it also could be a veneer over disunity, as I can tell you from my former denominational experience. So it isn't just unity of church government, but a unity through mutual trust in our Savior God. Unity in the same faith. And here I think faith can be read either as the faith that we possess, the faith whereby we lay hold of justification, and it can also faith can also be used in the New Testament to refer to the system of doctrine that Christians hold to. And so uh, that would also be an aspect of what Paul is talking about here, the system of doctrine that Christians hold to. When Jude says that he wrote to contend for the faith which was once delivered to all the saints, there he's talking about the system of doctrine, the things that were taught to us. But we are first and foremost united to one another by our mutual trust in our Savior God. So there has to be purity of doctrine either way you look at it. If there's to be true unity, if there's going to be love, it has to be love with faith. Though he is in Rome and has plenty of other concerns, Paul is deeply interested in the believers in Ephesus. You might think, I think that if I were in his position, I would be concerned about things like, oh, how am I going to pay to uh, keep myself here under house arrest? I can't leave. I've got, I've got a Roman soldier chained to me all the time. I've got to pay for my own housing. I've got all these other problems. How can I be worried about these churches elsewhere? That would be my temptation. But Paul is concerned about all of these churches and all of these Christians whom he has worked with in the past. And he wants this church, he's very concerned with, to maintain that unity and purity. So he summarized the major doctrines of salvation for them. Our salvation is the work of the triune God, for one thing. For the Father has sovereignly decreed our faith. Christ has purchased it. He's purchased our salvation. The Holy Spirit has applied it to believers, granting us even the very faith by which we lay hold of the blessings in Christ, as he showed us 
in chapter 2. But that faith then will prove itself by good works, demonstrated especially in our love and our self-sacrifice for one another. Our striving after the things of God, both individually and together. We live out the unity that shows that Christ has broken down earthly divisions and made his new people one nation and one body and one temple. He's made one nation of many peoples. He's made one body of many members. He has made one temple of many stones, as it were. And so as we love God and each other, we abandon the ways of the world. And we put on the whole armor of God to make war on Satan who holds this world captive. And remember, again, we're not making war on other people, so to speak, but it is a spiritual war made on spiritual powers, spiritual forces of darkness. All that is the work of God's grace. We couldn't do any of those things that I just mentioned if not for God's gift upon us, if not for God's gift to us, an unearned, unmerited gift that Christ earned instead for us. So Paul offers that benediction we see in verse 24, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. That insincerity at the end, before he says amen there, can be translated as incorruptible. Literally, the Greek could be translated, grace with all those loving the Lord of us, Jesus Christ, in incorruptibility. Sincerity is a valid way to translate it, but it goes beyond what we usually think of as sincere. It's an incorruptible love, and that's why I kept the title here as Love Incorruptible. Now, If we're honest, be honest with yourself. How many of you are loving Christ with incorruptibility? I'll confess I'm not. Do I love the Lord with all my heart and soul and mind and strength? Well, I'm closer to it than I was before. But no, I don't love the Lord with all of my heart. I have other things that distract me from him. Not with all of my soul and mind and strength, no. But that's the beauty of God's grace. It's not a love that originated within me. Just as it's truly my faith, I have faith, and it's my faith, but my faith isn't my own doing, it was a gift of God, as Paul told us in chapter 2, verse 8. The love I have for Christ is really my love, But it didn't originate with me. It came as a gift from God. 1 John 4.19 We love God because He first loved us. We love, John says, because He first loved us. In the same chapter, John tells us, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. We have to be very careful about how we take that. We need to take it in context. 
So people will take that out of context today and then they'll say that anything that we call love in our uh, human relationships must be good because God is love. Uh, no, we have to, to note that this is not love. It's, it's very useful that the Greeks had several different words for love and this is speaking here of agape, uh, the self-sacrificial love. Anyone who does not practice that kind of love does not know God because God is that kind of love. It is his very character to love like that. And then continuing, John says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So propitiation is a fancy word that means he satisfied God's anger at our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, John says, we also ought to love one another. So a result of God's love for us is that I should also love everyone who God loved in that way. And you should love everyone else who God loved in that way. John says, no one has ever seen God Notice how that language is very similar to what he says in his gospel, chapter 1. We haven't seen God in his deity. We haven't seen God as God because he's an invisible God. But Christ has made him known. Christ is God in human flesh. No one has ever seen God, John says here, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, uh, one thing that John is saying is you want to actually see God. You can't see God in himself, in his very being, because it's an invisible being. But you want to see God in one sense? Show him in your love. Love one another, and that's how you will see God. Love one another, again, with a self-sacrificial love. If God abides in us, his love... John says, is perfected in us. It's completed in us. We could read it that way. By his grace, love incorruptible is given to us. The love that God gives us is an incorruptible love. So that no matter what, no matter what we do, when we stumble in sin, no matter uh, what happens to us, we will love Christ and cling to him and through Christ will love his people. So when Paul says, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible, as we could translate that, he's acknowledging Exodus 33 verse 9, where God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. He's acknowledging that that's the kind of love God has and thus by that grace that God has given us, we also can love. Love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. Paul is praying that grace upon grace be poured out on those who already have received God's grace. The proof of which is an undying, incorruptible love for Jesus. You want to have assurance that you are saved. There are many assurances that Scripture tells us we can have in the way in which the Holy Spirit is changing us. A major one is spoken of here. Do you love Jesus for who he really is? And do you find that that is a love that can't be taken from you? Christ commands peace. 
unity and purity in his church. By God's grace, we can practice that because by God's grace, we can love Jesus with incorruptibility, with an incorruptible love, and show that love by living out that peace and that unity and that purity to which he has called us. So our exhortation as we close this letter is live out the peace of God's church, the unity of God's church, the purity of doctrine of God's church, and live it out with love. It's not a coincidence that just a bit before this, just a couple chapters before this, Paul told us to speak the truth in love. We live these things out through love. A love first and foremost for Jesus. An incorruptible love. Christ commands you to do this. Love him incorruptibly, and if you do so, you will therefore practice a peace for his church, and a unity of his church, and a purity of doctrine. As he told his disciples in the gospel according to John, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let us do that as we seek to love Jesus with a love incorruptible. Let's pray. Lord our God, grant us grace upon grace that we may love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible, that we may display that love in the peace of his church as we show our love for one another, and that resulting therefore in unity, and that unity would be around the purity of of the doctrines of the things that Jesus teaches as we find them written in Scripture. So let us display our love in the peace and unity and purity of the church, even as Jesus has commanded. So we pray in his name. Amen.